According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here this morning for the purpose of growth. Join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 12. Once again, Luke chapter 12, going through the emphases of this chapter. Long chapter, 59 verses. Luke is uh, pretty noteworthy for the length of his writings. In fact, he only wrote two books, Luke and Acts, right? But if you just count the number of words, uh, Luke wrote the majority of our New Testament. Did you understand that? Wrote more than any other, new, more than Paul. Paul had 13 books. But uh, Luke and his two actually composed more words than Paul and his 13. So that gives you an idea there. Something you didn't know. How about that? All right, Luke 12, 1 through 59. We're actually focusing on 35 through 48. Pericope heading in uh, this text here says, Be in readiness. Not a bad heading for that. The uh, emphasis is on watchfulness. Watchfulness. There we go. Watchfulness. All right, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that as believer priests, we are filled with the Holy Spirit in fellowship with God the Father and with His Son. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together this morning. Father, thank you for the uh, fellowship with a young man that's uh, getting ready to wrap up seminary. And uh, thank you for that. I ask that you would bless his uh, continued studies as he approaches graduation. And uh, Father, that you might uh, already even now have the lampstand prepared for him that, uh, that you have for him to shepherd. Father, uh, thank you for our prayer time this morning and the pastors and churches from coast to coast that we prayed for. And uh, thank you for bringing the new one to our attention this morning that we were blessed to be able to add to, uh, to our prayer list. Father, we have just so much to celebrate, so much to thank you for, uh, most especially now for this time of teaching. Uh, open our eyes, Father, in particular, the admonition for watchfulness. We need to be watchful and all the more as we see that day drawing near. So, Teach us the truth and impress it on our soul. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Emphasis number seven is on watchfulness. This will be a dominant theme uh, as the crucifixion approaches. It will be the centerpiece of his Mount Olivet discourse. And so many of these verses that we're reading today will come back again and they should be very familiar to you. Um, So don't be surprised. It starts off with loins and lamps. Gird your loins and keep your lamps lit. And that's the material that we dealt with uh, last week. Be dressed in readiness. The King James, gird your loins and uh, keep your lamps lit. Loins and lamps illustrate the mental attitude of preparedness. And uh, took some time to explain the aspect of what is referred to as a paraphrastic uh, verb tense where you have the uh, the imp- the imperative is not get dressed. The imperative is be continuously be having been dressed. And that's a difference between uh, ordering somebody to dress themselves and ordering somebody to keep themselves in a having been dressed condition. And that's what the imperative is here. Likewise, the imperative is not light your lamps, but to have your lamps be in a having been lit condition. And that uh, stresses uh, the, the present continuous action stresses the ongoing reality of readiness that believers must be. Now, if you're not currently ready, then absolutely get ready. But the imperative is not get ready. The imperative is be ready. And so that's hopefully an impact of what uh, we can uh, embrace in our own understanding. This is not a church age message. This is not a church age message. Jesus Christ is an Old Testament prophet. The stewardship is still Israel's until the day of Pentecost. The stewardship is Israel's. This is uh, 
the, the text of Luke is uh, contained within the New Testament writings, but the events of Luke take place during the Old Testament dispensation of Israel. We need to understand that. People get mixed up when they try to find rapture passages where rapture passages don't belong. Now, we can take a secondary application because the, the uh, emphasis here, the, the concept, the principle, is the principle of imminency. And we have our own event coming up, our own prophetic event that will close the church called the rapture. And a feature of the rapture is imminency at any moment. Could happen today. Could happen right now. That's kind of weird, isn't it? As soon as I said right now and the air stopped. Wow. All right. It wasn't the rapture. It was just the, uh, the fan cutting off. All right. But that's how imminent the rapture could be. So we draw a secondary application from passages like this because this is a passage that's teaching imminency to Israel and their stewardship. We can still draw application ourselves because of our own principles of imminency. And so that's the important note you see on the screen. This is not a dispensation of the church message for primary application. Only so far as the imminency principle pertains to the rapture do we find secondary application from this text. So we want to be on the alert in our own stewardship. We want to be uh, actively engaged in our own responsibilities. So does that mean we're wise virgins or we're uh, uh, no? Okay. The virgin language is the language directed towards Israel and the lamp lit is directed towards Israel, not directed towards us. All right. Beyond that, the simile here, the simile that's employed when it says be like men who are waiting for their master. He wants them to be like this parable. Men waiting for their master when he returns from a wedding feast. And this message of imminency is dispensationally instructive. It's going to teach us a lot with respect to Israel and their place in God's plan of the ages. Mainly, they're not entitled to attend the wedding feast. They're not entitled to attend the wedding feast. They're waiting for the master to come back from the wedding feast. See, they will be on earth undergoing tribulation while the bride is in heaven with the bridegroom. We understand that dispensationally. We have a lot of uh, uh, imagery here that this parable communicates. And the first item we notice is that they're still at home working while the master is out there at the feast waiting for uh, the master to return. And when he does return, Boy, do they have a surprise. They have a surprise because they're waiting to serve. They're waiting to, uh, you know, they're dressed in readiness with their lamps lit. They're waiting, waiting to serve upon the master and uh, expecting that, uh, you know, when he comes home, he's going to want to have his, uh, his uh, you know, clothing taken care of. And, and, and he probably not, he probably won't want to eat. I imagine he's going to stuff himself at the wedding. But he will want to uh, uh, perhaps have his feet washed again after the walk. He's going to want to be prepared for his own uh, uh, going to bed and so forth. And then once he's down to bed, then the servants can finally ungird their loins. They can go to bed. They can put out the lights and things like that. They're waiting for the master to come so that they can serve him. And then they can get their rest. Well, they're going to be in for a shock because when he comes, he actually is going to serve them. And it's a, it's a change of situation here that's going to be quite noteworthy. Secondly, they are to be prepared for his welcome homecoming after the wedding feast. In other words, they're waiting to greet him when he returns to his own dwelling. And uh, this is, in fact, their opportunity for makarios happiness point three happy blessed that's makarioi are the slaves whom the master will discover to be watchful makarioi that's our word for happiness also often it's translated blessedness i try to draw distinctions between eulagetos and makarios every chance i get um, because i think they're significant i think that uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, and, and God uses eulogetos when he wants to stress that component, and he, stre- and he uses makarios when he wants to stress that component. Here, with makarios, we find the happiness involved. So happy is 
or are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. In verse 37. Happy. We find a promise of happiness for believers that are doctrinally oriented to the imminent principles of God's plan. And again, this is our secondary application, but there is a source of happiness for church age believers who are properly oriented, doctrinally oriented to rapture teaching. And I find the opposite is also true. Believers that uh, are not oriented to rapture teaching, are not oriented to prophetic events, tend to get caught up in the things of this world. And let's be honest about it, things of this world are pretty gloomy. <laughs> All right? When you want to talk politics, you want to talk economics, you want to talk current events, you want to talk uh, sports, I mean, you want to talk, what do you want to talk? And it gets discouraging. See? So happy, blessed are the slaves whom the master will discover to be watchful. We went through a whole string of passages on watchfulness last week. The verb is gregoreo. If you ever know anybody named Gregory, you understand his name means uh, wakeful or watchful, on the alert. And in particular, I won't go back through it, but we understand our own imperatives. Watchfulness has to be uh, the responsibility of a shepherd in a local church. We're all supposed to be watchful in 1 Corinthians 16:13. Be on the alert. Act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. That's a, a four-point outline for the Christian way of life right there in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. We have watchfulness imperatives in Colossians 4, 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 5, 8, to be on the alert. Why? Why must we be on the alert? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. All right? So I think rather than try to co-opt Israel's messages on alertfulness, we have plenty of our own that are actually more severe than Israel ever had. All right. Because Israel did not function in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict like we do. Israel had a, a, a pretty um, a high hedge of protection. Ours is much lower because Israel didn't have the armament we have. Israel didn't have the Ephesians 6 full armor of God that we have. Israel didn't have the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit like we have. Israel didn't have the universal priesthood of all the believers like we had. They had to go to a priest to intercede on their behalf. We are priests in Christ. So rather than get caught up in their admonishments for watchfulness, uh, we can draw a secondary application from them. But let's go ahead and go to our own passages for watchfulness and draw the primary application in, uh, in the proper sense. All right. Now, when the master returns, the fourth observation we make, remember this is under point B, Israel's simile for imminency is dispensationally instructive. The fourth item, when the master returns, he girds himself to serve the slaves. And we come to recognize that their slavery days are behind them. Their slavery days are done. Israel will go from slavery to freedom in the millennial kingdom. Israel will go from slavery to freedom in the millennial kingdom. Now this is in terms of the metaphor of the parable, in the terms of slaves waiting for a master to return. But understand that they uh, are going to have a freedom of the reality of their freedom in the millennial kingdom is their position as the stewards towards the Gentile nations for the thousand-year reign of Christ and the blessings that they will be bestowing on the Gentile kingdoms. And the Gentiles will be serving them. The kings of the earth will bring their tribute to them. See? And uh, the whole human race will be spirit-indwelled for the millennial kingdom, but it will be the Jewish people that will be vested in the prophetic office for the millennial kingdom. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Israel will have prophetic ministry to the Gentile nations for the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so here in this parable, in this metaphor, we see uh, the, uh, the surprising uh, activity here in verse 37. Happy are those uh, slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will gird himself... That's the imperative that they had been under, to gird their loins. Well, he will gird himself. 
and have them recline. Have them recline. Remember in the uh, Roman days, that's how they ate. They reclined. They leaned on their left side and they just did all their eating with this one hand while they reclined on their uh, Roman couches. And he will wait on them. Have them recline at the table. And he will come up and wait on them. So uh, what a role reversal, huh? (laughs) What a uh, um, change of circumstances. And then finally, we have this impact on the second or third watch. Now, there's a lot that can be done with this verse. We're not going to do it this morning. The second or third watch demonstrates both imminency and inevitability. Inevitability. I think that gets overlooked in some respects. The second or third watch. Now, the Romans divided up their night into these three watches for guard duty. And uh, so soldiers would have, you know, first, second or third watch in the night. And uh, Doug knows what this is about. You have (laughs) guard duty. And um, to me, the second one's the worst because that's where you try to sleep, you get up, and then you try to sleep again. Uh, I, w- I much prefer to either the first watch or the third watch because it was so much easier just to stay up extra late, do your first watch, and then sleep for the rest of the night. Or sleep as much as you could through the first couple of watches and then get up early. You do your third watch and then stay awake for the day. And, and, and that's that second watch that was the killer where you, you sleep, guard duty, and sleep again. But now notice, whether it's the second or the third, we don't know. It could be either, all right? Uh, I mean, conceivably, it could even be the first watch. But as this story is being told, we, we're, we're brought into the story at this vivid point where obviously the first watch is already now gone and we're approaching the second watch. And um, it could be at any moment. That's imminency. Could be now. Doesn't have to be, but could be. Then the second part of this, the idea of inevitability. Understand that eventually morning does come. Okay, The sun is going to rise. And so the inevitability of it is that, and of course in the, in the metaphor here in the story, it's unthinkable that the master is not going to come back at all tonight. He, he is coming back at some point because he's not staying at the house that's holding the, 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 the feast. He is coming back to the house he belongs to. And uh, now, also, when we get to the Matthew parallels in the Olivet Discourse, we, we start to recognize that it's the bridegroom himself that's in view here. When he comes back, he's going to come back with a bride. Okay, um, The bride is not mentioned in this chapter, so we'll hold off on some of that until we get to, uh, until we get to the later developments. But inevitability, morning is coming. At the very least, he will be here by the third watch. That's the latest he could possibly come. All right. And I think as we uh, we watch current events and we see that the direction our world's going and we say, well, goodness, the rapture is imminent. It's been imminent since the first century, but now it's even more imminent because what is left? What is left to be accomplished? I mean, is not the table set for the tribulation? What is left to be done? All right. Even as now we watch the end of the republic and the rise of the empire. See, Uh, I mean, it's almost like we're living in the days of Julius Caesar. The republic is done. The empire is upon us. And, you know, it, the uh, the senators wouldn't admit it under Julius, but they finally had no choice to admit it and when uh, uh, Octavius or Augustus took the took the throne. So at some point, the American Republic is going to admit the same thing. Republic is done. The empire is here. In any event. Third thing we want to get out of this passage on watchfulness is the command to know. Jesus commands his audience to know the burglary maxim. I still don't like that. I, I renamed this eight times and I hated every one I came up with. If you come up with something better, let me know and I'll use it. But the story about if the, if the householder, if the, the owner of the house knew at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Okay? I mean, how obvious is that? And so the uh, what at what hour is the burglar showing up? Well, if you know about it ahead of time, you can take care of it. It's not going to happen. 
And so uh, it's a maxim or it's a proverb or it's a parable. Uh, I wouldn't really call it a parable, but Peter calls it a parable in verse 41 when he says, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? So it's not clear whether Peter was just talking about the burglar deal or if he was talking about the uh, the wedding feast and the slaves or it's not entirely certain what Peter was talking about, but he said, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? So maybe we can call this the uh, the something parable. So a thief word that starts with P or the anyway, come up with your own title. The burglary maxim, the, the house thief story. It's pretty self-evident, though. But here's the impact. He says, know this. Be sure of this. And the primary verb in verse 39 is the verb gnosko, to know. And it's given in the imperative mood, most likely, as a present active imperative of gnosko. Now, as it appears in the text, it's gnosketa. Right here, gnosketa. G-I-N. O. That's the long O, the omega. It looks like a W. G-I-N-O. S-K-E-T-E, Gnosketa. Second person plural, because he's talking to you guys, plural. Know from the verb Gnosko, 1097, if you have the Strong's Index. Present active imperative. In other words, it's an order. Know this. If you don't know it yet, know it now. And keep on knowing it. Keep on knowing it. Now, the only awkward part about this, and it's parallel to Matthew 24, uh, where it's also in the uh, same tense, same mood. The only ambiguity that comes in is the fact that in the second person plural, the uh, forms are identical between the imperative and the indicative mood. In other words, the eta ending. The eta ending is the same. It could be present active indicative. It could be present active imperative. So it's left then as an interpretive question. Is Jesus ordering them to know this? Or is he simply saying that they do? That they already do know this? You know. Right? We use the same idiom. In other words, is he saying... All right, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert, whether he comes in the second watch or even the third. Blessed are those slaves. And you know this. And you are knowing this. And you all know this. Everybody knows this. That if the head of the house had known whatever the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Okay? And you know that. Everybody knows that. So it's, it's almost an expression like that we have where we just say, well, you know, Right? You know what I'm talking about? You know. And uh, it doesn't have to be imperative. It doesn't have to be commanding them, know this. It could be indicative. You do know this. You've known this all along. Everybody knows this. And, uh, and I think that... I think that uh, may actually be the better way to understand it rather than a, uh, an imperative. If you take it as an imperative then you'll want to do what, like the New American Standard did or New King James, some of these others. You put a, a stronger term in there, like be sure of this. You know, know this, really know this kind of a thing. Anyway, if you want to have some fun with that, you can pull up all 22 times that Gnosketa occurs in the New Testament and make up your own mind as to whether it's a command or as to whether it's a question. I mean, whether it's a statement, an indicative. The interesting things, though, are when it's used as a question. Because not every question, I don't think, is a question. On some different applications there. So, um, and we got time. Let's let's uh, let's look at that. There we are. There we are. Link the two windows together so they'll follow each other. And um, and I'm headed for verse 39 in the Ginosketa. Here we go. 
All right, there's 22 verses, and we can skip most of them because a lot of them are repeats from what we're looking at here today. Such as Matthew 16, well, here's one, Matthew 16:3. We've already covered this in Matthew 16, and he's rebuking them. Um, they want to see a sign from heaven, and he answers them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? And so that's the question. Do you know? Are you knowing? Okay? It's not imperative. He's not commanding them to know. He's asking if they do. He's asking if they do. Uh, In Matthew 24, this is... um, Interesting, because it's the parable of the fig tree. They couldn't figure out why he cursed the tree and different things. We'll deal with that. But he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. You know that summer is near. When you see these things, then you know it. That's not a command. He's not ordering them to know that summer is near. He says that they already do when they see these particular signs. And so we're not going to take that as a command. You know, when you, when uh, its branch has already become tender, put forth its leaves, then uh, obediently, no. Okay. No, he's not ordering them to know. He's just saying, stating the indicative, you know. You do. Likewise, in verse 33, so you too, when you see all these things, know that he is near right at the door. Now, sometimes uh, folks will take the first no as indicative and the second no as imperative. And what I'm saying is the forms are identical. And it's simply an interpretive matter whether you're going to take it as a force of a command or whether you're going to acknowledge it simply as the reality of what it is. When you see all these things, you know that he is near right at the door. See, when you and I see the conditions of the cosmos around us and we understand the conditions that will be on the earth when Antichrist has reign in the tribulation and we see that those conditions are approaching near identical status, what are we supposed to know? That it's close, that's right. And if we know that it's close... Uh, how should we be conducting our Christian walks? That becomes the application then that the New Testament gives us. So that's uh, Matthew 24, uh, verses 32 and 33. It comes up again a few more verses down in verse 43, which is the parallel to our text this morning from Luke chapter 12. But know this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have uh, been on the alert, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So, uh, again, is that an imperative? Is he saying, but know this, I order you to know this, know this right now, keep on knowing this? Or is he simply saying, you do, you already know this, everybody knows this. And I think this, it's neat when you understand the, I think when you can appreciate the uh, expressions like, you know this, you already know this, that it does appeal to a certain universally acknowledged uh, uh set of understandings like we saw in first corinthians the well-known facts the what everybody knows see or what uh maybe we call uh, common sense right why does it have that and now i understand it's not as common as it used to be <laughs> okay and i also understand that there's some people that don't have any not a lick of common sense and you wonder how they lost it all but the, never mind that the 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 origin of the expression is is instructive because it communicates the fact that there is a universally acknowledged uh, common reality that we all live in in terms of the world that we uh, that we live in. All right, the other uses here in Mark 13 we'll skip by those because they're parallel. Um, to the uh, the fig tree story, Luke ten eleven. And uh, this is where he's sending them out two by two and giving them the instructions about how 
if they receive a greeting, then they can stay there. If they're rejected, then they uh, wipe the dust off their feet. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Even the dust of your feet, of the city which clings to your feet, we wipe off in protest of you. Yet you know this, you are knowing this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Take that as an indicative, take it as an imperative. Either way. Luke 12, 39. Uh, Luke 21, 30. Back to the um, fig tree again in verses 30 and 31. Here's one for you. John 8, 43. Why do you not know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. Is that an imperative? No, it's not an imperative. It's a question. Why are you not knowing what I'm saying? Here's why. Because you cannot hear my word. You don't have the ears to hear. So you can't obtain the knowledge of God's word. Of course, in that context, they're of their father, the devil. They're unbelievers. And unbelievers can uh, listen to spoken human words, but they are not going to have gnosis, gnosko. They're not going to know the truth of anything that's communicated. Here's another question. Do you not know what I have done to you? And I find that is another thought because there's no punctuation in the manuscripts. So are we convinced that there's really a question mark here? So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, you do not know what I've done to you. Take the question mark away. Make it a statement. He reclined at the table again. He said to them, you do not know what I've done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and so you're right, for so I am. And he goes on to give the doctrine. You know, is it a question? Is it a statement? Okay. And on a practical basis, even if it is a question, I think it is a question, but whichever way, it doesn't matter because if it's a question, it's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. And he goes on to explain what it is that he's done. So regardless of how you want to punctuate it in English, it doesn't make a difference. You can phrase it as a question, phrase it as a statement. It's communicating the same truth. You do not know what I've done to you. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. John 14, 7. Same chapter, verse 17. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. It's just indicative. You know him. It's not ordering them to know him. Saying, you know, the world doesn't, but you better. It doesn't say you better. It says you do. It's not an order. It's a statement of the reality. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Is that an order? Is it a statement of fact? If the world hates you, here's an order now. Know this. You must know. You have to know. Start knowing. Or is it simply a statement that you already do? If the world hates you, you know, you already know that it hated me before it hated you. So, in any event, what we're illustrating here, there aren't too many more, that um, in these cases where sometimes they're rendered as imperatives, really there is no imperative, at least a very weakened sense of an imperative. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own need and to the needs and to the men who were with me. In his speech there to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He's not commanding them to know about his secular career. He's saying that they already do. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty you might become rich. Is that a command or is it a statement? You already know this. You know this. You know that he became poor. You know Christ's grace. Because that's the grace that saved you. You know His grace. Galatians 3, 7. You know that it's those who are the faith who are the sons of Abraham. You know that. It's not the sons of works. It's not the sons of human effort. It's not the, the sons of Hagar. It's the sons of Sarah. You know that. It is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. So I think in all of these where you have imperatives... Not really necessary for them to be imperatives. Talking about Timothy, you know his proven worth. 
that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Is Paul telling the Philippians, you have to know his proven worth? Right? You, you have to know about Timothy's proven worth? They, is he ordering the Philippians to know him? Or is he saying that they already do? You know his proven worth. Hebrews 13.23 Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom if he comes soon I will see you. Either ordering you to know this or take notice of this, or stating the reality of the indicative mood. You know that our brother Timothy has been released, with, uh, with whom if he comes soon I will see you. The author of Hebrews is still in prison, but they knew that Timothy was already released. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Again, indicative mood doesn't have to be an imperative. Um, you could take it as an imperative, but there's no reason to. There's no reason to. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And so this is simply, again, indicative mood. By this, you know. Not by this, I'm commending you to know. It's by this that you do know. The spirit of God versus the spirit of Antichrist. All right, so there they are. There's every second person plural use, present active, either indicative or imperative of gnosko in the New Testament. See? Didn't take too long, did it? So then we are back to the verse then. Um, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert. Uh, blessed are those slaves. Uh, and you know this. That if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You know this. You know this. And I guess if you don't, then you can take it as an imperative and start knowing this. <laughs> okay. Here's the principle. Two principles from this. Foreknowledge of misfortune allows for prevention. Right? Foreknowledge of misfortune allows for prevention. If you know who, what, where, when, why, and how, you can stop it. Foreknowledge of misfortune allows for prevention. The master of the house can prevent the thief from his uh, plundering activity. Foreknowledge allows its prevention. And uh, I didn't take the time, you know, this chapter is already long enough, but to spell out these, each of these points and each of these word studies is so vital. The term oikos despotes is interesting. Oikos is house. Like you see it there. And then despot. The house despot. Who's the house despot? Say, well, I know who the despot is in my house, but <laughs> who's the house despot? Okay. And uh, remarkably enough, you know, we've got this concept in our mind, you know, that a man's house is his castle, right? The head of the house, the man of the house, the head of the house. That's all true. Because the husband is the spiritual leader, the accountable party before God in the leadership of the house. And yet, there's a verb of oikod despotes. And that verb is applied to women in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The younger widows that are too young to uh, be you know, permanent lifelong widows. Uh, Paul urges them to remarry. To keep house. That's the verb oikod despoteo. To be... A, uh, an oikos despot, interestingly enough. So both uh, husbands and wives should be oikos despoteoing in their house. And despot's not a bad word, right? It's just in history there have been so many tyrannical despots that it gives the term a bad name. <laughs> but Jesus Christ is a despot. We know that he's a despot. Hebrews calls him a despot. We praise him for that. Nothing wrong with that. It is sovereign total authority. That's what it's about. So the oikod despotes 
can prevent the kleptase. Who's the kleptase? Yeah, like kleptomania, right? You're known a kleptomaniac? You do. You got one that you, yeah. You talk about the, her desire to, I mean, everything. Salt and pepper shakers and silverware. And, I mean, just everything. You got to do a shakedown when you leave someplace. Find out what they stole. So the white despotase can prevent the kleptase from breaking and entering. Dia Russo, digging through. Digging through. You know, when your uh, house is made of clay, you know, the mud brick uh, structures in the Middle East, uh, you know, nowadays they just throw a brick through a window and climb through or through a door and whatever. But um, if your house is made of clay, then you could dig through that, go through the wall. You have imagery of that in Job and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, language of digging through the wall. The verb here is to dig and uh, breaking and entering. That's used when it talks about laying up treasure in heaven where thieves do not break in and steal. Okay, They don't dia russo and uh, klepto. So foreknowledge of misfortune allows for prevention. Now, don't think that this is the point he's making. Because if you're on the alert, you're not trying to prevent something from happening. That's simply the, uh, the language that's communicating the urgency for staying on the alert. Foreknowledge of misfortune allows for prevention. I think there's a lot of Christians that are trying to run their Christian lives in such a manner that they can prevent things from happening, keep problems from happening, or the moment a problem starts happening, uh, nip in the bud, stop it, I don't want any problems. And it's interesting because God has not um, gifted us with foreknowledge. <laughs> All right? He's the one with foreknowledge. He's the one with the plan. He knows what our trials are day by day by day. And we don't even know what tomorrow's are. We just worry about today. Today has enough evil of its own. We're not here in foreknowledge of misfortune to prevent problems as they arise. You know, my very first time I ever drove to Texas, I was driving through Flagstaff, Arizona. Hit something in the road. I don't know what it was, but anyway, I had a double blowout. Right tires, right front, right rear. Flat, flat. Not a good day. <laughs> All right. Amazingly enough, at the rate of speed I typically drive, I should have been killed. But the Lord stopped the vehicle and... and uh, now, had I known that ahead of time, would I have not driven through Flagstaff, Arizona? You know, I've never been back to Flagstaff ever since, from 1990 till uh, today, to this day. I have no intention of ever going back to Flagstaff. But, um, but see, is this what it's about? Is it about knowing what the problems are and then just avoiding them? Avoiding all problems? No, not at all. There's a second principle, see. Foreknowledge of rescue allows for endurance. Foreknowledge of rescue allows for endurance. This is our application. Foreknowledge of rescue allows for endurance. Now, the language of thieving and plundering actually does have application for Israel because Jerusalem will be plundered. Israel will be ravaged. Antichrist will have no mercy on the Jewish people in the Great Tribulation. And uh, those that have insight, the tribulational saints, the Jewish believers in the tribulation, will uh, be able to get out of Dodge, right? Get out of Jerusalem before the plundering hits, before the, the women are ravaged, the children are dashed in the, in the, the plunder that is... Uh, that is decreed but that's not our application what's our application he delivers us from the wrath to come that we in the bride are delivered from the wrath to come ours we're patiently waiting for a rescue we're patiently waiting to get out of here and today would be fine as far as i'm concerned you know i got some things on my calendar but nothing that can't be canceled for the rapture right 
<laughs> Foreknowledge of rescue. Now, again, it's imminent and it's inevitable. And with those two concepts, then, I can endure all kinds of testing by keeping my perspective where it needs to be. So foreknowledge of rescue allows for endurance. It provides for endurance. It contributes towards endurance. It helps motivate endurance. Favorite chapter of my favorite book, Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 34 says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Well, who likes that? Who likes being stolen from? Who likes the government confiscating what's yours? Like the news stories this week about the Chrysler dealerships that were forced to be closed and the ones that were protected and kept open. And uh, the ones that now don't have the competition they used to have. Quite interesting. Well, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Why? Knowing, here's our gnosko. Is this an imperative or is it an indicative? It's just indicative. They know, not commanding them to know. They do know. They already know. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You've got treasure laid up in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy, thieves do not break in steel, and the IRS doesn't tax. All right? Or uh, corrupt tin pot socialist dictators don't pervert bankruptcy laws to confiscate your property and give to others whomever they wish in total violation of all existing bankruptcy law. It is unbelievable, absolutely historic what's taking place. Absolutely historic. So, we need to accept joyfully. <laughs> all right? This uh, you know, this whole chapter is focused on the um the glory to be revealed, focused on the, uh, I think, in the, um, if you back up a little bit, to verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Alright, what's our hope? What's his promise? I think it's the rapture of the church. Absolutely. I think in this context, that's what we are dealing with. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking. Now, normally, our own assembling together is thought of as our um, church services, right? That, you know, Sunday morning is our assembling together, or, or Sunday night, or Wednesday morning, or Wednesday night. That our, our scheduled, appointed Bible classes, prayer meetings, fellowship times, that those, that's usually what we think of. With Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our gatherings, uh, you know, formal gatherings as a local church body. I think that's actually a reference to the rapture. Because the compound term episunagoge is only used in two places in the New Testament. That's one. And uh, First Thessalonians, uh, Second Thessalonians is the other with respect to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episynagogue together with Him, the rapture of the church. If, uh, hold your finger there, you don't believe me. You're giving me that look, that look that says this rabbit trail has gone into the weeds. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2. We request of you, brethren, with regard to the parousia, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our episunagoge, gathering together to Him. That's the rapture. The return of Christ and our gathering together to Him. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, 
to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, they got this counterfeit letter that said, oh, you missed the rapture. Good luck to you. <laughs> okay. Episunagoge. It's not just synagogue where we get our term synagogue to gather together. I think when we gather together for church, that's synagogue. When we gather together for Bible class, that's synagogue. Sunago. When we come together for prayer meeting, that's synagogue. Sunago. But episunagoge is only used twice. There, where there's no doubt that it's a rapture reference. And here in Hebrews 10.25, again, I would take you back to a larger focus. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In other words, let us be heavenly minded, imminently mindful of the rapture of the church. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let us stay busy about our father's business till the trumpet sounds. Not abandoning doctrinal teaching concerning the rapture. Not forsaking our own episunagoge, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The rapture. So not forsaking our episunagoge, as is the habit of some. Isn't that interesting? Just like today, believers drift and abandon and, and quit caring about the imminent trumpet. Like, oh, yeah, 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 sure, it can happen. Don't bother me with all that heaven stuff. I'm having fun right now. In any event, it's an interesting way to look at Hebrews 10:25, And I think that this entire chapter is putting a heavenly focus to a temporal situation so that we don't lose our perspective on what we're doing. Over to Second Peter then, chapter 1 and chapter 3. Foreknowledge of rescue allows for endurance. Second Peter 1.14 Verse 12, Peter says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Now, Peter didn't mind redundancy and repetitiveness and the doctrine of review and repetition. I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present in you. See, Peter says, we're going to go through basics again. And the congregation groans. Says, oh, my goodness. We already had basics. Peter says, yeah, you need them again, again and again and again. I consider it right, as long as I'm still in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter says, I'm not dead yet. I might as well keep teaching Bible class and remind you what we already know and keep learning. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I was, I will always be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So there's uh, knowing, gnosko. It's not an imperative, it's an indicative. It's just the reality. Peter knows that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling is imminent. This tent can be gone today. And that's an encouragement. It, it, it urges us to endure and it urges us to stay busy about our Father's business. And then a couple of chapters over where we're focused on the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And uh, since we look for these things, we're diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And then a couple of other things here that I usually don't cite in my recitation to start a Bible class. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. The patience of our Lord as salvation. See, there's another angle to imminency is that procrastination <laughs> doesn't change imminency. It's still imminent. But if God has delayed, then praise Him for being so patient. Because who am I to gripe about Him delaying to 2009? Because His patience has allowed more to come to Christ. That's right. What if his patience had run out in 1972? Yeah, I wouldn't have been saved. Okay? 
So am I thankful that he delayed long enough till 1973 and then the rapture could have come anytime after 1974? As long as I'm saved. Hey, great. Well, no, let's see. When did, well, when did Sharon get saved? No, we've got to back this up a little bit. And then, oh, wait a minute. Then my kids were born. When did they get saved? Okay, wait a minute. So, okay. Um, pretty happy that uh, my children are believers now and that the patience of the Lord, which we're to regard unto salvation, uh, delayed at least for my kids to get saved. So now we can have the trumpet, right? Well, there's other kids out there too, right? You CEF missionaries. Anyway, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. See, this is what keeps you from getting jaded about imminency. See, the mockers that come saying, well, you know, where's the promise of his coming? You understand that? This whole chapter is about the idiot mockers that are mocking the imminency of the return of Christ. Don't mock it. Don't think that God's slow. God's patient. He's not slow as some count slowness. And then he talks about uh, in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Peter really struggled to learn what Paul was trying to get across. <laughs> all right. Which is fine. That's encouragement for us. Keep working at it. But now notice which the untaught and unstable distort. If you're not under teaching, what are you? You're untaught. And if you're untaught, what are you? Unstable. I tell anybody, absolutely anybody that wants to know if they're struggling with this test or that test or marriage or family or finances or health, it doesn't matter. You want stability? Get teaching. Get under teaching. You need more stability? Get more teaching. We teach 320 some odd classes around here every year. If you're only taking advantage of 40 or 50 or whatever, get, get more. Get stable. Then it goes on, the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. That right there is an amazing statement of bibliology because it just took the entire Pauline corpus and elevated it to the level of scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And that includes the Old Testament, it includes the New Testament. By uh, direct statement of inspiration here, everything Paul wrote is, is termed here scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, not commanding you to know it, you do know it. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Knowing, knowledge of rescue allows for endurance. Knowledge of rescue allows for endurance. Knowing this beforehand, what's this? All of chapter 3, that the return of Christ is imminent and God's not slow. Be on your guard that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Do not abandon imminency. Do not abandon the imminent rapture of the church. Ever. Not today, not tomorrow. The moment you do, you're carried away. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, that's the context for it. Clinging daily to imminency. Foreknowledge of rescue allows for endurance. All right, we've got a D, E, and an F still uh, to get us down through verses uh, 41 through 46 and then 47 and 48, but I'm already at the top of the hour. So, what do we do today? We finished B, points 4 and 5, and then we did C. With subpoints one and two. So we got D, E, and F. All right, we got next week. Unless we hear a trumpet. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for our time together. Thank you, Father, for the reminders on imminency. And, Father, uh, just another facet of this that breaks my heart, Father, is how many. Um, Postmillennialists and amillennialists are uh, working so hard to bring in the kingdom, and they have no imminency. In fact, uh, they're growing so discouraged these days, they think it's further away than ever before. 
and they're working harder and harder, and they're they're seeing uh, seeing things slipping away more and more, and they're seeing things getting worse, and they're trying to bring in a kingdom. And uh, and they're growing discouraged, Father, thinking they got a long road ahead. Terrified that uh, this these uh, Supreme Court appointments are going to set their clock back and uh, and delay their uh, their dreams of bringing about their kingdom. Father, uh, they have no clue when it comes to imminency, when it comes to um, your kingdom, when it comes to your son. So, Father, uh, thank you for opening our eyes to these blessings and these doctrines. Help each one of us be a testimony of imminency uh, with our with our loins girded and our lamps lit. I know that's not our metaphor, that's not our primary application, but still we can be uh, we can be on the alert as we're commanded to be, which means we're armored up. And uh, the more people we greet, and uh, the more people we speak to about keeping their armor on, then uh, the more folks that we can put onto a uh, footing that is uh, anxious for the Lord to return. Father, there is a reward promised to those who have loved His appearing. And I pray that every member of Austin Bible Church would be eligible for that reward. That um, as You've equipped us to anticipate, that You would also work in us to love that which we're anticipating, to love His appearing. Thank You, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.